Welcome to the XY Advisor Podcast, a global community of financial advisors sharing and learning with one another to drive the positive evolution of financial advice. To get involved, go to xyadvisor.com or simply download the XY Advisor app. Innova Asset Management is a boutique portfolio manager that has been managing client portfolios since 2010. Innova believe in constructing portfolios that work with investor behaviour rather than against it. This is why they have built risk-focused portfolio solutions that support a goals-based advice framework. Innova's focus on risk management and their active approach to asset allocation has been designed to work through all market cycles, which was evident in 2020 when they were able to participate in the market rebound while also protecting capital on the downside. Hello and welcome to this topic series on behavioural investing, where we're taking a deep dive into the client and advisor decision-making process. My name is Fraser Jack, and in this, the final episode rounding out the series, we take on not-so-modern portfolio theory, where we discuss the traditional strategic asset allocation, or SAA, and how it compares with dynamic or risk-defined portfolios, and what that means to your clients. If investment advice is part of your value proposition, then this episode is for you. Thank you for joining us again. This is uh, episode five in our five-part series. We are talking about modern portfolio theory. Uh, now, this is a this is a classic. I might start with you, Catherine. Uh, the the research show. You know, I don't know. Maybe uh, nearly seventy years ago, we we had this thing, and you know, it evolved over time. Modern portfolio theory. Uh, it, it came in. It seemed like a great term at the time, um, but these days, it doesn't sound like it's the uh, it's the term we should be uh, referring to it as anymore. What are your thoughts? These days, it's definitely all been thrown out the window. I read a blog post the other day that was titled, Nothing is Real Anymore. <laughs> and it had all of just, just the basic fundamentals all mapped against each other. And, and it does make you wonder what's, what's going on, especially from a macro larger um, perspective. So the, uh, the model portfolio, modern portfolio theory is it still has some basic relevance, I think, in terms of just just uh, risk and return, you know, in, in general, that kind of basic uh, overlay potentially still has some, uh, has some relevance if we look at, say, a cryptocurrency. A new cryptocurrency, yep, all the risk in the world and potentially all the return in the world. Great. Excellent. That's easy. <laughs> but for traditional asset classes, this is an absolute nightmare. We always knew that cash was a very risky asset class for young people because if we define risk as uh, the chance that you will not achieve your goals, then obviously investing in cash is one, one way to almost guarantee that young people won't, won't achieve their goals because it will be eroded by inflation and tax and, and they'll be going negative. <laughs> Hard to achieve goals when you're going negative. But these days, with interest rates where they are, etc., it's um, it's a it's a it's that discussion, but on steroids, and now for everyone, not just for young people. Yeah, now I think um, I think one of the things that we've 
guilty of in the you know in some of the past advice and the and the the evolution around financial advice is that um you know we've we've sort of hung our hat on this it's been easy just to stick with modern portfolio theory to understand you know there's defensive and growth assets and there's an arc and it all works like this and it's, it's probably going to come back to patricia I, I really love what you said in one of the previous episodes around you know um you know we we're talking about tools and and in today's world and today's today's advice is very different because you know we've never had what we have today um what are your thoughts around this and and and, you know how do we bring this investment conversation to um you know around modern portfolio up and and describe it with clients and and in a way where we might have other things to look at other asset classes and other conversations to be had but it's just very difficult to to make it fit within those the, the traditional boxes of financial advice yeah, I think there's a lot of um, complexity here, to be honest. Uh, I think it's a little bit of a Pandora's box. Um, you know, what we were saying in the previous episode about um, what we consider defensive, um, not being so defensive anymore with bonds, for example. Um, but then what do we use in- instead? Um, so it is actually quite a difficult um, period that we're living in. Um, we've never experienced anything like this before. Um, so it makes it really difficult, obviously, for investment managers, uh, and let alone for compliance and, and, and to catch up and, and, and licensees and what's acceptable, um, you know, for us to recommend retail clients. Um, so I think, um, it requires, uh, you know, there's a lot that we need to be looking at. Um, and, um, more and more we're seeing, uh, some solutions to that. So for example, um, you know, allowing portfolios to have uh, a, a higher range of tactical allocation so that, you know, maybe back in the day uh, where there would have been only a 10% tolerance, you can see more of a 30% to- tolerance these days. Uh, again, very complex. And I think um, this is why we need, um, uh, you know, different layers of professional um, or professional expertise. Uh, that's why I believe that my job is not to be an investment advisor, uh, as in we're not there picking stocks or bonds or uh, determining asset allocation on a daily basis where they're talking to clients, right? So, um, you know, and then you've got other investment managers and, and experts that you lean on uh, and different uh, product solutions that, you know, as time uh, goes by, we're seeing different products come to the market that have different um, approaches and, and, and they can address different uh, issues, I guess. So I think, um, we just need to continue to evolve there with the, the solutions that the product providers are, are giving us, um, to address the, the complexity, complexities of investing these days. Yep. Now, Catherine, I wanted to ask you about uh, something that you mentioned in the previous episode um, regarding, you know, with with risk profiling and and the complaints that have come out of this area with people saying, "Oh, I've, I was in, I was, I didn't know, and I was put into this thing, and um, you know, it's it's not per, as per my risk profile." And then the relationship with risk profiling tools, um, you know, they might have been out of date or whatever, but then being such a, you know, growth defensive basis and and ha- having to stick within those types of realms especially when interest rates are so low? It's a nightmare scenario. It really is. And it's been built off the back of, I think, 30 years of quite high unrealistic expectations of returns. So um, I'm not sure when it was, but it definitely was a time when the balanced portfolio was 50% growth assets and 50% uh, conservative assets. I'm sure there was a time. I don't remember it, but I'm sure it exists. And 
but ever since for the last 20 years or so, might be a bit extreme, but um, the balanced portfolio is now 70% often, 70% growth and 30% defensive. And that includes in the industry funds who are, you know, in theory there for their members. And so not only is, is that kind of asset allocation an issue uh, potentially in the current climate, um, but also the classification of what is a defensive or conservative asset. So if you've got cash returning zero with inflation at 7% or 5%, it doesn't really <laughs> – plus, well, there's not much tax on zero, I suppose. Um, but that is – how can that be ever classified? How can a guaranteed negative 5% return be classified as a conservative asset? If anyone said, you, okay, you invest in this thing, we'll guarantee that you lose 5% every year. People would say, well, that sounds terrible. <laughs> so there's even just the classification of how we think about each of these asset classes is a whole a whole different discussion. And I think that plays in with um, with shares in particular, Australian and, and international equities with the overvaluation scenario that we're in. It, it really um, makes you think, are they aggressive assets or, or are they uh, gambling? At this point, like how do we how do we classify each of these asset classes on a on a regular basis? And it's not like you mentioned, Patricia. It's it's not really our, our job as a financial advisor to every day uh, be looking and and calculating and trying to figure this out. There are people who it is their job, and it's it's our job to work with clients. So it's a complicated scenario when you overlay that with the importance of risk profiling and how those the risk profile in theory leads directly to the asset allocation which leads directly to the returns regardless of crash or not. So it's a, it's almost like a perfect storm. It's a good point that you made there, uh, Catherine. One of our biggest bugbears is um, the way that um, the offensive assets are categorized, uh, how there is no consistency or how someone can call a balanced portfolio and it's a 50-50. Or I've seen balanced portfolios, Catherine, that are like 88% growth. Um, or, you know, to, and I've, you know, how is that allowed? Um, one of my, yeah, so one of my biggest bugbears is there needs to be consistency between what's defensive and what's growth, uh, the names that we give them, uh, so that clients aren't misled. There's plenty of clients in what they think is a balanced portfolio. Balance, as the name suggests, should be 50-50. Well, it's not. Um, so, uh, I think, um, yeah, we definitely need to address that and that requires the government to step in as well. Yeah, I couldn't agree more, Patricia, on the naming conventions around, you know, what, what are these things? You know, all, all we're asking for is consistency uh, across the board so it's easy to compare uh, apples with apples. Um, but then if we also throw in, uh, you know, dynamic uh, asset strategy, you know, tactical, um, you know, then you've got, uh, you know, risk-defined and and and. and total assets there's there's all these other categories that are now sneaking in um to conversations does that just confuse the matter for clients <laughs> uh, um yeah how long's the business string i think um you know for example do we really really go into a two-hour webinar with clients about uh, what bonds are and the different credit uh, securities, of course not, right? So um, they need to know enough, but how how technical you're going to be, uh, it's important to also make sure you don't confuse them. So um, I think that 
again, uh, I agree with Catherine's comment. Our job is not, that's not our job. Uh, the, the honors of that should be put back on product providers in how they classify their products, uh, what the risks, um, they are in that moment, exactly like it's cash risky today. Um, and essentially relying on them, uh, to build those products and have the right labels and for us to then build the, the right portfolios with the right labels, um, not for us to, always um you know always think of cash as defensive for example um it, regardless of what the interest rates are or and inflation so um i think again uh, a bit of a pandora's box but definitely uh, a lot of work there still needs to be done with the product solutions that we have yeah and catherine uh, obviously um you know i i feel like it's a great idea that advisors have an investment philosophy whether it's you know we're not investment managers we're advisors or whether it's we we want to do this or we want to do that whatever that might be um for that to be clearly displayed on the label um on their website and in their passion and their enthusiasm before clients come in and, and then clients can either buy into that concept as a val- one of their values or not one of their values and they can uh detract from being uh, a client of that uh, of that uh, advisor um is that a solution for then people then to for advisors to be able to say this is where i hang my hat this is my belief this is my passion this is my values this is my my um my thoughts on the subject and and this is where um and if i do that on the label um then we're not really talking about um so much around that that you know i'm you know i should have done this other thing for the client but i never do that and and going back to your comments before around a lot of advisors have that bias anyway So we know that it doesn't matter what field you're in, but the best success is probably going to come from a specific niche. So you're going to be not trying to be everything to everyone, probably. You're going to be marketing towards a specific niche. And I think that builds on the discussion we had earlier about really being transparent and upfront about what your niche might be. And your niche might be, hmm, like I talk about myself, I started at the end of 2007 great timing. So I'm very much focused on strategies and I am overly conservative when it comes to clients' money. Um, And that is who I am. And I don't think that it's my job to get up in the morning and check the US markets, really. (laughs) If it comes across my feed, fine, but that's not my job. And I think, so I'm not an advisor anymore, but if I was an advisor now, I would Imagine that that the kind of positioning that you can acquire by being transparent about what your role is. So not necessarily in how I communicated them, what I don't do, but in terms of what you do in a positive sense. I think it can be so empowering. There's so many really successful stockbrokers and they tell their clients, this is what I do. I pick stocks. That's all I do. Don't talk to me about your insurances. I don't care. You don't have an estate plan. Not my problem. Don't talk to me about it. It's not my specialty. Like my specialty is I'm going to pick some stocks for you. Give me some money and I'm going to get, I'm going to pick the best stocks for you and get you a return that's um, associated with your, your risk tolerance. So they're very upfront about what their niche is and what they can deliver to clients. And I think we can lose our way as finan- as holistic advisors when we start to think that not only do we really spend a lot of time getting the clients to articulate their goals and their values and we quantify achieving them, we set them up with a plan, we check in with them. Oh, and also we we manage every single dollar down to the T in an environment where, as you mentioned before, Patricia, cash and, and bonds are no longer really quantitatively defensive assets. 
Yeah, definitely. I can't wait until technology can help us with that a lot more for simpler things to be honest. Like, for example, you know, if I have a client doing a regular withdrawal and we're doing it because markets are high, they don't necessarily need it. You know, we're paying down debt. It shouldn't be my job to try to remember that I have that client that when the markets crash that I have to stop the regular withdrawal, you know, things like that, like that proactivity. Um, so I think there's a lot of tools that um, technology should be able to help us with to be proactive and um, and not just reactive and, and have flags of uh, things that we should be doing um, from a time critical perspective. Um, but yeah, it is not my job to try to remember. And I say that to clients. I even say, you know, with clients that we're regularly contributing or withdrawing, I say, I'm not going to remember. You know, we, we don't have a list of clients and we call them every day about what markets are doing and we're going to stop or we'll start. That's not our job. Hopefully one day technology can help us with that. But at the moment, it's not our job. But remember our discussions and if you want to stop it and if something happens, come back to me and we'll do it. Um, but I wish I could be more proactive in that sense. Um, I think that there's some work being done there, but I'd love, uh, you know, technology to help us with that. So our job is to remember, you know, know what the clients want, have flags and triggers to help them with the behaviors along the way. It's not about what markets are doing as such. Yeah, fantastic. And uh, I love that concept, uh, that both those concepts, with the one about transparency being an opportunity, you know, this is what I do, this is how I, this is how I operate, this is what I do best and, and leaning in towards that. And, and Patricia, just, you know, with yours, you know, you're, as you've mentioned many times throughout this, you, you definitely help the client with goals under their goals under management you're making their goals and dreams and aspirations come true you're relating money back to them um you're not you're not there as a fund manager um and leaning into that concept and and explaining that to your clients um thank you so much uh both of you for coming on and chatting in the whole series i really appreciate it we often give the listeners an opportunity if they want to continue the conversation what's the best way of reaching out uh to you and and continuing the conversation patricia if somebody wanted to reach out to you what's the best way they can uh, find you um, if they just uh, try to find me on Instagram or Facebook, Patricia Garcia, um, it shouldn't be too hard. I think my Instagram is Patricia Garcia Advisor, so it's pretty easy to find. Um, and then our, our website is yourvisionfinancial.com.au. Fantastic. I love the fact that you're on Instagram, not 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 just, you know, the LinkedIn, the, the standard LinkedIn uh, uh, area, which is more, more where I play. Um, <laughs> Catherine, if somebody too. wants to reach out. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. If someone wants to reach out to you, Catherine, what's the best way they can find you? Yeah, I'm not as much a, a Instagram icon as Patricia, so um, probably just a message on LinkedIn would be easiest for me. Yep, fantastic. And uh, Catherine, you're also working on a, a lot of stuff around the um, ethics in the ethics space and in, in the ethics training space. So I uh, look forward to seeing more of that come out over over time. Uh, thank you so much. Really appreciate your uh, help with these episodes. Welcome back, gentlemen, to this conversation. We are covering off on the concept of modern portfolio theory, uh, in particular things like uh, SAA, our risk-defined portfolios. We're getting a little bit deeper into this conversation now where we're starting to look at um, you know, the investment world of the past versus the investment world of the future. Let's go with Dan. Dan, you want to kick off on this one? What are your thoughts? Um, David, I know, um, has has got a quote and um and believes that um uh Harry Markowitz gets blamed for a lot yeah. unfairly and and I, I completely agree with him and I've published a few articles on this in that there was a huge misinterpretation of what his seminal paper back in nineteen fifty four said, which was that the use of diversification, the use of um assets that have less than perfect correlation combined together can lead to a result that is either 
um, the same level of return for lower risk or a higher level of return for the same level of risk. But at the end of the day, it was about risk management. That's what it was about. It was about risk management. He actually said in the paper, this is based on historical data and when you look at the optimal risky portfolio sitting on the efficient frontier, it came out at a 60-40 US equities and bonds solution. And then the industry took it and turned it into the 60-40 portfolio that became prevalent throughout the world. It wasn't Harry Markowitz who did it, and yet people blame him for it, and yet he never said that in his in his work <laughs> at all. Um, the thing that I like to point out, and, and one of the um, one of the, the core principles of ANOVA is that the the concept of robust rather than optimal portfolios. I had a, a conversation with a with a very intelligent ex employee of mine who's a you know CFA qualified, and I talked about this concept of um, building portfolios based on risk benchmarks, not on capital market benchmarks, but on risk benchmarks because it's risk that can cause clients to have negative. Um, behavioral responses that can be value destructive um, and can derail their ent- the entire advice process, which is far more than just investing. And he said to me, yeah, but Dan, if, you, if you're going to be using mental accounting and bucketing and you're going to be combining portfolios for different goals, you're not going to end up with an optimal portfolio. And I said to this gentleman, yeah, but there's no such thing as an optimal portfolio. Like, and I, I never refer to any of the modeling that we have as an optimizer because it can't, like it can only optimize to the inputs. And yet the inputs we know that they, they will not be exactly how things pan out in the future. They, they, they aren't, they can't. So we, we think that, um, you know, the, the concept of robustness is about, you know, we deal in a world of probabilities and we can use advanced statistical measures to apply um, probabilities to outcomes um, to build more robust solutions that can be distilled down into some fairly simple messages, you know, like, you know, if, if, if the potential upside on an asset or a series of assets is really, really high and you have a really high level of confidence in them, you know, you may want to concentrate a lot more of your portfolio in those. But if you're in a period of time such as now where uncertainty is really high and yet the potential returns are very low because, you know, valuations are high, yields essentially don't exist, um, you may want to be far more diversified. Um, you know, that's not rocket science. You can apply things like the Kelly Criterion and other very advanced statistical measures to do it, but it, they do boil down to some fairly simple concepts, which I think can lead to more robust portfolio construction. And I think building them based on risk budgets to, you know, you want to maximize the level of return, um, within those, those, those risk parameters, but benchmarking yourself to risk goes a long way to, um, managing that client behavioral element that we started this whole conversation about in terms of goals-based investing, goals-based advice. Mm. Yeah, uh, Dan, you've got some big themes to unpack there. And I, I might just start with a, a short story arc on just uh, modern portfolio theory because I think where we want to get to is really asking ourselves, is this SAA approach the right way forward for the advice community? So, um, I'm glad you're sort of defending um, poor old Harry a little bit. So the modern portfolio theory guys, I'd sort of say there's Harry Markowitz, James Tobin and Bill Sharp. They're all Nobel Prize winners and between them all and sort of over a period of nearly um, oh, 15 years, they came up with this sort of framework. So you're spot on, Dan, that um, really what Markowitz said is um, try and make, yeah, there's a framework here for maximising return for a given level of risk. 
And, um, yeah, that, that makes sense. And then between um, Tobin and Sharp, they sort of said, well, if you identify this optimal portfolio, then you can use that in conjunction with cash or in conjunction with leverage. And, and in a way, everyone should have that same portfolio and, and leverage it up. And that those two things combined are pretty much modern portfolio theory. What it doesn't consider, and they're pretty all, all open and honest about this, um, and that's the thing, academic research always is is very narrow in a, in a specific area with lots of um, exceptions put to the side because they just want to explore a, a particular arc. So Dan's point about inputs is is just spot on. So yeah, garbage in, garbage out. It's, it, the, you know, the efficacy of using that framework comes down to how well you how how the quality of your inputs are, it doesn't account for transaction costs. Um, it assumes normal returns. But even with those three things, you can probably still manipulate the framework and and use it well. And then you get things like um, difference in the liquidity of different investment opportunities. So think about private market assets. Now it's starting to get a lot more complex. And then you've got term effects. So you know, that whole framework's just a single period framework. Yet some people are making a one-month decision, others are making a 20-year decision. Um, so that starts to get really messy. And then finally, you've got um, – you've used the word intertemporal a few times, Dan. It's, I, I love that word, but I've tried not to use it along with stochastic, but now that you've, you've sucked me in, um, there's sort of this intertemporal decision-making that – and what that means is that you're going to be updating your decisions through time. You know, um, each – yeah, each period of time you're going to reassess what's on offer, the opportunities in the market. Should be reassessing your goals as well. You reassess your your plan and you you put it in place. And um, yeah, that really steps outside this framework. Once you do that, um, it's it's really stepping fully outside that framework. So that's sort of the journey of modern portfolio theory. And then somehow. Yeah, advice industry, I think particularly in the US, grabbed that and sort of said a 60-40 portfolio works really well. And to be honest, for the last 30 years, I, I saw some research the other day that sort of shows it still has outperformed a lot of financial plans. The question now is is whether, yeah, you can't, we can't all just adopt the behavioural bias of anchoring ourselves to something that might have worked for the last 30 years. What is the right approach moving forward? Yeah, that's a really interesting point for both uh, what you mentioned there, but also what Dan was saying before about optimal portfolios. It's very easy to find the uh, most optimal portfolio if you're looking backwards, isn't it? Oh, you can yes, certainly, that's right. You can certainly find out that, that, uh, that which could have been better at the time. Just just in that, then, if that's not necessarily the right answer moving forward, what you know, what what can we start doing, and what can we start looking at, Dan? Well, I think. To begin with, the question of whether the SAA portfolio, uh, will it be um, appropriate going forward? We will only know with the benefit of hindsight, but if we just think of some fairly simple things that have – I mean, you mentioned 30 years, I'd say 40 years, I'd say since 1981, um, you've had this period of you know high starting yields on bonds, um, low valuations on equities. You've had expansion. You've had both um, predominantly um, – uh, monetary um, looseness that has allowed a tailwind in the the majority of asset classes, and we are at a point now that you know I, I find it very hard to see how that forty year tailwind can persist for you know an extended period of time, and so I think a solution going forward. Um, is 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 more about being a lot more dynamic. I mean, if you talk to an advisor 
and to their end client about, you know, what's in their portfolio, the client doesn't care if you're sticking to an SAE or not. All they want is the outcome. They don't they don't care. What what that what they want is for you to give them what it says on the box. And so I think that's where it you know, some solutions are should be based around um, this concept of trying to build robustability in the face of uncertainty using, you know, statistical probabilistic methods to try and say, okay, well, we don't know what the future is, but we can probability weight based on the evidence that's available. Um, you know, yeah, in hindsight, it probably won't be the best solution, but at least we can tilt stack the deck in our favor so that we're, we're going to be more likely to end up getting a better result and on top of that that we haven't gone and done something in terms of the risk associated with the portfolio that blows up the the whole behavioral concept that the the client has gone through which is why i you know which is why i, I founded my firm and which is why we, we we push this 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 concept of you know portfolio is built around risk benchmarks because you know, they, they allow for robustness. They allow for um, managing to risk irrespective of the environment. Like if we have another 40-year tailwind, okay, fine. But if we don't, okay, that's fine too. It, it actually doesn't matter. It's because you ma- you're managing it to that risk amount that you're trying your best not to breach because that's what's going to cause the behavior response from the client that could completely derail the entire advice strategy and then everything's gone out the window. Yeah, Dan, when you talk about, when you say robust, you've mentioned a few times, it's a really interesting concept. Are you talking more around the, um, you know, the risk side of that or we're talking value type stuff? Like what, what, how would you simplify that, that term? I'd simplify that in um, robust as in uh, under varying stress scenarios that outcomes are within bands of reasonableness based on what a client has defined that they can tolerate. Um, you know, whether they are historical tests or they are forward-looking theoretical um, stochastic tests. So, you know, you know, like a Monte Carlo simulation of, of a series of events um, based on inputs, um, you know, and, and you can invent um, things um, that, that, that could go wrong and, and how that could potentially affect the portfolio and building portfolios that are robust under different environments. You know, um, you know you've got the Bridgewater um, cross where they talk about economic growth and then inflation and they talk about their four quadrants. We talk about six um, kind of blocks you know, a portfolio that is going to be reasonably robust in, in each of those six, but probability weighting the fact that you don't know the future perfectly. So don't have all your eggs in one of those baskets, you know, risk weight the allocation and tilt towards the one that the evidence is telling you is the most likely to occur. And as the information changes, be prepared to change, which comes back to that systematic approach that I referred to earlier. Um, and having some hedges in place in case you're wrong, because you invariably will get stuff wrong. Yeah, it's it's. it's I agree with that framing of robust approaches to portfolio and the how you've described it, Dan. And I do think it's a great approach. And I, I just probably throw in an observation there that there's a unique opportunity for advisors to do that compared to the superannuation industry, uh, because the superannuation industry has a lot more peer group pervasiveness about it and and robust portfolio approaches sort of mean that you may not be the participate fully in the most attract the most upside scenario because you're spreading 
you're sort of taking decisions to ensure that you do well in other scenarios as well or do acceptably well. And um, so there's a little bit of a give up there. You translate that to a peer grouped industry and you've nearly got to pick which scenario is going to be the one that most likely evolves and, and play for that so you don't underperform your peers. And so there's a great opportunity for advisors to add, you know, at a system level, huge value to their clients um, by adopting approaches like what what um, Dan's described? Yeah, it sounded like we missed out on having that conversation in the first uh, in the first episode when we <laughs> talked about biases. That peer group uh, conversation. Yeah, yeah, well, it dominated my life for a while. <laughs> I'm happy to miss that one. <laughs> There's a lot of comparison, isn't there, about top quartile or you know top percentage yeah. or whatever it might be. So um, yeah. yeah, so Dan did touch about you know the time frame of your process. I think that's important. You're sort of seeing. Yeah, this evolution of SAA with like a dynamic asset allocation approach overlay. And then you sort of just say, well, actually, I'm just going to be fully DAA might be an extension to that. And then um, what we're seeing in institutional world is sort of the emergence of this jargon called total portfolio management approach or the total portfolio approach is sort of where you're no longer having sort of silos across your portfolios. And you're just saying, well, here's my current portfolio. I'm constantly going to be trying to take that portfolio on a risk return adjusted basis or a robust, uh, whatever sort of philosophy I use into a better place and um, becomes a whole of team effort, which obviously has cultural challenges to it. But um, that's sort of where the institutions are heading down that TAA approach. What I always find interesting with the DAA type approaches, what's the, as you get shorter and shorter, personally, I find it harder and harder to have really quality insights into markets. So how do you sort of tie that up? And maybe Dan has some more insights there. I do sort of feel like if you're active in your SAA, there's lots of value that can be added there because some of the framings that I might use, like um, yields as an indicator of bond returns and you know, PE ratios as a long-term indicator of equity market returns, they're sort of things I'm be careful of the biases here, but yeah, I do have a little bit of anchoring on. I think they do provide useful foundations as I guess shorter time frames, I, I can't find much to anchor on. But um, Dan's a practitioner in this space. <laughs> yeah. So, look, I'll, I'll have to divulge some of the some of the stuff we do. We, um, when it comes to modelling, it comes to forecasting. We we do it over three different time horizons. We we look at um, the short term. You know, not to. Twelve months out, um, the medium term and the longer term, out to ten years. Um, and you're right. In the short term, it's very difficult to find things that um, can necessarily be particularly useful. So you know, we've done a series of tests and um, have found some substantive evidence in regards to a few things that that are prevalent, and some of them are known, such as things like short term momentum, for instance. Um, and things like mean reversion um, over a 12-month time horizon, well, generally that's not a particularly good um, component. But over over the medium term, yeah, that 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 makes that makes a very big difference, um, and frequently um, can have a great uh, it, it can have an an, an inordinate. Um, Influence on the distribution of the results that you get with that when that reversion actually occurs. Um, so in the short term, we actually combine um, some quantitative components, like I mentioned, um, uh, uh, momentum along with 
qualitative elements where we use um, common leading economic indicators. Um, we take uh, in, each individual has their own individual views that they then put forward based on that information that they've got available to them. They started out as equal weighted kind of um, amounts that uh, are weighted towards it. And then those that have shown that they have maybe more efficacy in one area than another might get a slightly higher weight in in their input. But the short-term component is always ever only going to be a, a shorter-term um, element to what we do in terms of return forecasting. It's in the risk forecasting that um, I think that we can do a lot more in terms of um, short-term and, you know, without divulging too much and getting into too much technical detail about higher orders and moments and return distributions and the anchoring of valuation and stochastic volatility, um, there are tools and methodologies that can be used to manage risk in the shorter term while still having that medium to longer term investment horizon and sticking to that as your philosophy. Yeah, the, the philosophy is... Um is the word that probably sums all this up, isn't it? Because uh, con- consumers or, or clients, in a way, we just talked about a lot of information around SAA from TAA to dynamic to risk-defined. We've got all these different terms that we use and, and almost struggle uh, you know, as advisors and planners to get all our heads around them in the first place uh, and then ha- have clients to expect to understand that, that information. And, uh, and so, yeah, certainly there is a lot of different translations to simplify things on the way, on the way through. Couldn't agree more. Couldn't agree more. In fact, we, we, we've tried to build solutions with names that it's pretty easy. That they're just they're self-explanatory. Things like risk-defined. Well, why is it called risk-defined? Because they're defined by risk. <laughs> you know, why do you call that a lifestyle preservation portfolio? Because it's designed to preserve your lifestyle. Why is that a wealth creation portfolio? Because it's designed to create wealth. Why is that an aspirational portfolio? Well, that's for aspirational goals long-term. Whereas, you know, you you know, fill out a risk profile and you were talking about people with their cars earlier. Uh, a, a colleague of mine mentioned that he thought the names, you know, conservative and balanced, they mean little. You know, he, he, he knew of someone who sat down and filled out a risk profile questionnaire and at the end of it, it said they were conservative. And he went, conservative? I drive a Porsche 911. How, did, how am I conservative? You know, so trying to use non-jargony stuff that doesn't mean anything and make it a little bit simpler. But by adding to it, I, you know, maybe we've made it simpler, but maybe we've just added more noise. I don't, I don't know. We're just trying our best. <laughs> so there you go. Maybe you should do this a challenge then to name your portfolios after different types of car. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, uh, so we probably uh, that sort of circles back around to the beginning of maybe why modern portfolio has been so successful for so long uh, is that it was fairly easy to understand. Yeah, I think yeah. There's, if I've sort of tried to describe some behavioural biases of of the advice industry as a whole, it would be a simplification bias. And you can sort of a there's probably two reasons why it may have occurred. One to create communication simplicity, and the other probably to create business model simplicity and hopefully it's the former dominating the latter but I think you know best advice practices would be advancing your, your processes to deliver better client outcomes but really improving 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 your communication and framing techniques to clients and if you can bring those on the journey together then the quality of advice can only get better and better yes um, so what you're saying there to me is an advisor's um, you know their 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 philosophy 
and their bit that you know whether it be the advisor or the planner, whether it be the business philosophy on on what they're doing, uh, and as we said before around um, communication and around technology, around embracing that and be able to put as much information and content, uh, whether it be videos or blogs or yep. podcasts or whatever about that as a thing as a thing that your business does and, and a belief that you're and, and a bias that you have and a, the way that you do things uh, for then uh, consumers to be able to listen to that and go yes that's the type of person I want managing my money your thoughts Dan? Yeah I, I couldn't agree more when we first started our business I said guys 50% of our job is to run clients money the other 50% is to communicate with them and tell them what we're doing why we're doing and how we're doing it um, it, it is just as important as actually managing the money because um, if they don't understand, you know, David's, David's um, um, ambiguity, what did you say? Right, amb- amb- strong amb- ambiguous bias. <laughs> yeah, ambiguity aversion. Um, and, and it's true, advisors and clients shouldn't be putting money into things that they don't, they don't understand well. And they're not going to understand them well without the education piece. And, and, and as you've mentioned, Fraser, there's been some phenomenal t- um, technological advancements that, um, and tools that have been made available to advisors now that they didn't have 15 years ago that the embracement of just makes this, this idea of um, communications and who people want to work with and why they would want to work with them so much easier for the, the consumer to make that decision, but also so much easier for the practice to be able to deliver um, and and I, I firmly believe it is the role of um, of the people providing product solutions such as ourselves is to aid in that process is to help with that process is to is to provide you know these whether they're solutions or it's content or it's it's information um, that's not just to go and sell your your stuff and sell your idea it's it's to help educate um, because you're in a position that you may have vastly more information um, and evidence to be able to provide that, you know, an advisor, their, their world is just so huge. They cover, they have such a massive gamut that they need to cover, um, you know, helping them out, that's the least you can do. Yeah, I agree. I think that's definitely a massive call to action for advisors and planners listening to this series in, in the idea of understanding what your philosophy is, being able to communicate it, being able to educate your clients on it, bring them along uh, and understand their um, their beliefs and biases and how they fit with yours. Uh, gentlemen, we might wrap that up. Uh, any final thoughts before we go? If I had to come up with one word, and I've banned myself from big words, it would be um, revisiting. So the ability to you know, engage and revisit with your client and um, account for new information, account for new market updates, the interaction of goals and with the investment outlook. And yeah, that's going to keep reinvesting in the quality of the relationship and the quality of the outcome that the client receives. So, um, you know, hopefully revisiting, there's multiple revisiting points all through that process. Yep, the evolution, Dan. I I hope that um, we haven't just provided uh, the listener with with um, problems with that they they they've picked up on that there are solutions out there that if they agree with these sorts of philosophies there are there are tools there are providers there are things that they can do um, to implement in their practice if they 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 feel it's appropriate um, to be able to provide a better solution to their consumer and and you know as David has just pointed out that ongoing that ongoing relationship with the client can be stronger and stronger and stronger by, by taking this sort of approach as opposed to treating things just as a compliance exercise. Um, I think there's a huge value add that can be made there, not just to the consumer, but also to the advisor's business itself. Yes, absolutely. Lean into the opportunity. And of course, always, we, as always, we give our listeners the opportunity to continue the conversation. Probably uh, we'll start with you, Dave. What's the best way if somebody wants to continue this conversation that they can reach out to you? 
Oh, well, thanks for the opportunity, Fraser. Um, yeah, we're, we're contactable. Um, David Bell at the Connexus Institute, or David Bell at the Connexus Institute.org.au. So we're independent, philanthropically funded institute. There's already a lot of um, open source materials on our website that you know, the advice world's welcome to pull down. They probably have been targeted a little bit more the institutional world, but um, yeah, they're there. There's there's learnings there, and all these things can be adjusted and, and framed up the right way. Yeah, wonderful. We love great resources. Uh, Dan, what's the best way that people can reach out to you or your team? Oh, the easiest place is to go to the Innova website, um, I-N-N-O-V-A-A-M, so Innova Asset Management. Um, .com.au. Again, we have a, a plethora of um, you know quarterlies and monthly articles and information available there, as well as a phone number, contact list, um, and uh, on the XY um, uh, forum. Um, I, you know, I, uh, one of the members of my team will is is if somebody reaches out, we'll be happy to engage um, and get back to them. And whether it's me or it's somebody who's more appropriate than me to speak to them, um, you know, we're more than happy to speak to people about things. Fantastic. And I do, I do know about a little tool that you have too for helping uh, helping advisors calculate uh, goals. <laughs> yeah, yes, yes, we, yeah, yes, we do. We um, we've um, we we have built a calculator to help, and, and we've got some exceptionally good feedback on that that um, helps helps cl- um, clients understand and and recognise and look at what things can look at look like into the future in this and we'll go let go back to the big word stochastic framework where there is variability in the outcomes and so therefore there is probability associated with achieving them but it doesn't need to be thought of as that complex it's 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 more about you know um, if you if you invest this way, if you leave all your money in cash when you've only got four hundred grand and you're sixty five, you're going to run out of money by the time you're between sixty seven and sixty nine. But if we can invest it slightly differently, you know, it, it might run out by the time you're sixty six. But there's like a ninety percent chance it'll last well beyond your eighties. Um, which one? Which which works better for you? Um, I think those are those are pretty valuable conversations to have with clients, and they're far simpler than than some of the some of the other ones that, that, that go on. Yeah, that's exactly right. It's always good to have tools that can have shout outs that make clients understand the ramifications of their actions. Gentlemen, thank you so much for joining us on this series. It's been an absolute pleasure. Very enjoyable. Thank, thank you. you, guys.